0: You're listening to the New Life Podcast. We're one church in multiple locations based out of Aberdeen, South Dakota. We hope this message helps the gospel come alive for you and gives you an opportunity to encounter Jesus in a whole new way. For more info on New Life, you can check out our website at www.newlifeaberdeen.org. Let's get ready to listen to today's message. Uh, We're going to get started right away. We've been in the Sermon on the Mount Today is probably the most passionate I have been about preaching on the Sermon of the Mount. I love the content content that Jesus gives in this sermon. And uh, I come at this with a lot of passion but also with an incredible amount of exhaustion. There was a wedding of our staff on Friday night, not Saturday like normal, but they're a bit weird so they had a weird day. And uh, some, some people on staff got married And uh, Kara, who does the live stream and and helps with youth group and things like that, married Jake, who is a product of our youth group and a teacher at Central High School. Uh, Apparently, they did not do a background check when they hired him, Uh, but they got married Friday. Okay, I need you to laugh at my jokes. I'm just going to put that out there. Uh, They got married Friday, and they had the biggest wedding dance in the history of wedding dances, uh, to the point of pure exhaustion for me, uh, because I danced for like two and a half hours coming into this Sunday, and I was so exhausted that I had to go and change shirts halfway through. Any sweaters in church? I see one right there, he's one of my good friends. Absolute sweataholic, okay? So I come at this a little bit tired, but good news is, very passionate because the content is there. And so we're gonna be talking about religion today. It's my favorite topic to talk about in church. Uh, But as we talk about religion and your good works and your deeds and how you get to heaven, um, I, I want to start off kind of knowing because there's a lot of new people at New Life this summer. Uh, I want to know your background. And so here's my opening question. This is where you participate. Uh, how many of you, on a scale of one to 10, were bad as a kid? Okay, one more time. <laughs> on a scale of one to 10, 10 being you had horns growing out of your hair and one being angelic and absolute tattletale of your siblings, how many of you, let, let's, let's just break it down even further. Here's a one, okay? A one is you never said a swear word growing up. Anybody? You can raise your hand. You're not self-righteous. Just raise your hand. I see you in the back. All right, we want to model our lives and raise our kids like you. Anybody? You, you can count on one hand the amount of times you said a swear word. Okay, here's what brings you up a level to a super one. You didn't just live like that you told on your siblings for not living like that. Anybody? All right, you had so many friends with that attitude, right? Okay, so that, that's your one, and then you kind of just going down the matrix of one to 10, a five is a little different, maybe I would put myself in the five category growing up. Um, you did some things that if you would've gotten caught for, you could have potentially ended up in small claims court, but it never happened. Anybody? Like You look back and you go, I wasn't a perfect angel, but I was really good at not getting caught, and I had a conscience, but not really. There's a five, anybody? Okay, that sounds like a new life crowd. Okay, so then there's this whole other new life crowd, and we're talking about righteousness today. You were a 10 on the wrong side of the scale, and so the way I would identify a 10 on the non-righteous scale is that if you had a yearbook entry, it would be most likely to end up in prison. Okay, anybody, like that was your high school life? There are a lot of New Lifers, and you can just keep your hands down because maybe you're embarrassed, but you don't have to be. That's just cool here. You can be anywhere on the matrix from one to 10 and find a home at New Life. We don't want you to stay that way. That's the caveat. We want the gospel to change you, but the beauty of the gospel is that you have one to 10s worshiping together. In fact, I was saying this earlier this morning, The church is the only place, if it's a gospel church, where the Bible is preached, it is the only place where ones and tens hang out, amen? I mean, just pick your context. You don't get a one with a 10, ever. I was telling the guys earlier, or the people in church earlier, I grew up like a five, but when I was little, I had a 10 in my life that my mom was deathly afraid of. We kind of hit it off in elementary school, And then by the end of elementary school, my mom said, no more. In fact, things were going kind of in the wrong direction to the point of by the time my freshman year came around, she sent me to private school. And so uh, that was actually a great thing for me, and I didn't even realize the value of it at the time. But I had this friend. I think I talked to him about him one other time in church. His name was Eric. He's in his 40s now. I don't know where he's at in life. Uh, But he was a 10 out of 10 to the point where here's how I identify a 10. Uh, we would go to a gas station. We had a Circle K. Anyone from the west, out west? You guys know about Circle K? Okay, Cir- Circle K is just a cooler Casey's. It was a, it was the spot. We would go there on our bikes in elementary school. And as a sixth grader, he had so much um, wrong going on in his brain that he would go to the cash register and he would strike up a conversation with the lady or the guy selling goods and he'd say, you know, how's your day? And he'd charm them. And while he's doing that, he would look them in the eye and he would steal. Uh, his, he, was, he was a bad kid, right? And so I remember one time, and I was a five, so I just ate the stolen candy, but I wasn't, you know, that was much better. Uh, but I remember leaving Circle K and I saw him do it and I said, why, if you're going to steal, in my 12-year-old brain, if you're going to steal, why don't you just go like take the Snickers where no one could see you? And this is what he said to me, he goes, because that's no fun. Uh, when I was senior year of high school, I moved away from home, went to school in Texas before I ended up in North Dakota, and he robbed my house. And then he got caught, and he went to prison. It's, it's not the best story. He called me. He was in a, in a 12-step program about 10 years ago. He called me and apologized for it, and it was really just a powerful moment. Uh, but I just remember specifically, when you look at your childhood, you have kind of the, the one through ten scenarios, and church is truly the only place where the ones and the tens get together. And that's the way that it should be, okay? But what Jesus is going to do today is he is going to attack this idea of what this scale even means. Here's here's where I'm going. Jesus is going to blow up the righteous scale, Because all throughout the Old Testament, you had people that were trying to obtain a status of righteousness by following gobs and gobs and gobs of rules. And then Jesus comes along in true Jesus fashion and he doesn't shift the scale, he drops a grenade on it and walks away. Because people that were to the inner circle of the religious system of the day saw themselves as a 10, and we're gonna get into that in just a second. But Jesus blows up the scale and in doing so, here's the title of the message, He takes righteousness and he redefines what it even means. He sets a standard to it that's so high that even the most religious, you know, I guess one is the good side, not 10. Even the ones of planet Earth cannot even come close to obtaining the righteousness that he's gonna lay out in this week and the weeks to come. So here's how it all starts off. It starts with discouragement and it ends in just an absolute passionate plea to follow him, Look at verse 17, there's only a few verses here. He says this, he's talking about righteousness, he's bringing up the law, he's bringing up the Old Testament and Jesus says to his disciples, he says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. And so when Jesus is talking about the law and the prophets, just something to tuck away in the back of your head, he's talking about the entirety of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is all about the law and then the prophets coming and saying, you're not following God's plan for your life. And so Jesus says, I didn't come to get rid of the Old Testament, which is why we still study it, but what I did come to do is I came to fulfill it. And so in that, here's why it's so significant. No one could follow all of these laws perfectly. The standard was set so high The people that really took pride in being able to try to fulfill all of these laws were the people that Jesus attacked the most. The Pharisees and the scribes were the best of the best of actually following the script, but everyone else was kind of like the JV, righteous level. They weren't making the varsity like the Pharisees and the scribes. And so there were 613 of these commands. 365 of them were, don't do this, and 248 of them were on the flip side, you need to live like this. How many rules do you have in your house? Anyone have more than 10? Anyone have more than two? I, I was thinking in my own life about knowing I'm gonna preach this this week. I'm going, I don't know if we have any rules, which is probably why you know, my kids struggle. But uh, um, no, like I, we just literally stayed up till three in the morning after this. I had an after party at my house with a couple of kids. And uh, we don't have like a lot of structured rules. We're very, very relational in our house. I am not big on rules. I feel claustrophobic on rules. I want to do something because it's the right thing to do, but I don't like following. Is anyone else like that? Like rules make you anxious? How many of you need rules or you struggle? You're a good German, okay? You're structured. Maybe the Ten Commandments, but that's about it. 613 rules. And here's what else is about this whole text. The rules are pretty out there. And so how do you even deal with this? I, I want to get into this a little bit because it's that important. Levitical law says some things that if you, have you read the Levitical laws? Did you, did you just breeze through those in your year plan? Have you read those laws? Here, here's one of the laws. Jesus is saying, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. There are 613 of these things. One of them is if your kid misbehaves, you stone him to death. So here's what we're not encouraging this week at VBS. That law. Okay, but what do you do with this? Because people will come along as a Christian. You need to know this part. People will come along and say, well, Christians are hypocrites, and especially conservative Christians, because they pick and choose. They say, oh, this law is a big deal. This rule is a big deal. But no one's stoning their kid to death, right, as if that's what you're supposed to do. So no one follows all the laws. Here's kind of the answer to that question, if you like having some answers in your artillery bag of, you know, sharing your faith. First of all, do this humbly, but here's how this kind of works. The simple answer is this. In the Old Testament, there was no separation of church and state. The community of God's people, the the way that their government was structured, their civil rules, their ceremonial rules, and their moral rules were all together. And so they had these even extreme rules that they operated under. Some of these rules, I'm going to have to wait to get to heaven to find out why in the heck that was even a rule. But all of their life was encompassed within the framework of there was no separation on these issues. And so when you get to the New Testament, what you clearly see play out in the Gospels is that we don't still follow, even in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul starts, you know, and and, and other apostles, they start saying it's okay to eat meat, it's okay to eat pork, things that the Old Testament said not to do. Peter has this vision, right? So the ceremonial laws have shifted. In fact, they even shifted, and this is kind of a long backstory, they shifted within the Old Testament. The ceremonial laws changed and then the civil laws changed, but here's what's consistent in scripture the moral laws, the moral laws never change. Right? So, so the, the civil law would be we don't still stone kids, but the moral law would be kids you're supposed to obey your parents. And so Jesus says this, and if you don't understand what he's talking about, you're gonna be incredibly confused that there's a difference between moral law and civil law and ceremonial law. And Jesus lays this out. He says, I came to fulfill. The law. And then he says this, he takes it up a notch. Look at verse 18 with me. He says this. He says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So here's what, in my own studies, what this is my opinion. I do not think, in this text, that Jesus is creating a JV and a varsity. I, I don't think he's saying, when you go to heaven, and this is what it sounds like, but I'm gonna give you some context. When you go to heaven, if you followed 583 of these things, then you're gonna be the greatest in heaven and everyone's gonna be bowing at your feet. I don't think that's the context of this. I think when he's talking about the kingdom of heaven, he's talking about his kingdom that's being ushered in in the here and now. And I think the practical application, and you can research this on your own time, is very simple. I think what Jesus is saying is there are these blessings that come from following my rules in life. I'm a God of structure, I'm a God that has rules and those rules are for your best intention and when you don't follow those things, there's a price to pay. Obedience is never optional in scripture. In in a culture where obedience is something that's been pushed aside, Jesus is saying, I have a way that you are called to live and if you don't live like that, you're going to be least in this kingdom because your life is not going to go the way that it should go according to my purposes. Now, I would also say this. At the same time, there are things that there are rewards in heaven. The Bible's clear about that. I just don't think that's the primary context of this text. Okay, so Jesus is laying this out for his leadership team. And what he's really saying is this. You need to take righteousness seriously. You need to take holiness seriously if you're my disciple. This is not something you can push on the back burner. Matt Chandler says this, where you lack seriousness of holiness, you rob yourself of a better life in Christ in the right here and right now. And there's this consequence to teaching other people a different way of living that has nothing to do with the kingdom of God. And it's not teaching like I'm doing right now, it's teaching by show and tell. If you are showing people a different type of lifestyle, then there are going to be consequences for that, and we see that happening all around culture around us, even within the structure of church. Matt Chandler also says this. He says, when you live a life that teaches the wrong things, you are showing people that the dots just don't matter. He says, follow the dot of the law, the letter of the law, this moral law that I've called you to live in. This is not an option. Even when it's incredibly unpopular, this is How I have designed things, and here's Jesus, right? I know what I'm doing, and I've designed them for your good and my glory. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want to serve a God that wasn't this certain. I heard someone say this week, I I wouldn't want to serve a God who needs a mulligan when he golfs. Oh, you know, I didn't really mean that. I didn't really, you know, in 2021, I didn't know how that would play out. When I told you these moral things and, and what look, life looks like between a man and a woman and marriage and, you know, the Ten Commandments, that he doesn't say, oh, I didn't realize those would be outdated. I just didn't know that. No, thousands of years later, Jesus is still in control and he knows what he's doing. To think that we could serve a God that's ever-changing and never-certain is insane. In fact, if you want to serve a God that's ever-changing and never-certain, then just worship yourself. Because I don't know about, is that you? That's me. I mean, I I could change by tomorrow, right? I could change if I eat something for lunch and go a different direction. I mean, we're ever-changing and never-certain. And when we worship a God with those same qualities, what we're really saying is this, I want to worship me. I want to call the shots, and I want to be in charge. And just maybe a side note, I make a crummy God. And and I would imagine you do as well. But, But here's how he closes out this text. He says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. When, when Jesus' team heard him say this, they would have been terrified. Because the absolute standard was set by the Pharisees. In fact, they didn't just have 613 laws. They did the classic religious thing. This is what religious people do. They took rules and then they made more rules. They had the book of the scribes. They had like five books that they accumulated over time. They would follow rule after rule after rule. And at the heart of the rule was I'm better than you. It wasn't an environment where ones and tens came together. It was an environment where ones were in the exclusive yacht club and tens were pushed aside. And then Jesus takes the tens and he puts them on his leadership team. And so he says, unless you're more righteous than the appearingly most righteous people in the culture, in the church, in the synagogue around you, then you have no place at the table. And what everyone's doing is they're looking around and going, we're cooked. What are we gonna do? We can never meet this standard that was set. They didn't just tithe. The Pharisees tithe on their spices. They would go to the kitchen rack. They would pull out some spices. They would give some of that to the Lord. They did everything above and beyond. And Jesus says, I'm not coming to show you some things about being righteous. He throws a grenade on the equation. He redefines righteousness for those that would follow him. And so I, I would just ask you, this is, this is a mantra at New Life. If you don't write things down, just text a few things to yourself on your phone or write them on the bulletin. I want to share a few things with you that's going to help you understand what New Life's all about. Number one, here's what I take away from this text. Religion will never make you righteous. If the Pharisees couldn't do it, neither can you. Jesus was harder on the Pharisees than the 10s. Religion will never, it was not designed to, make you righteous. Here's why. Religion is a bottom-up system. Religion starts with the premise that we're down here and God's up here. We talk about this a lot at church if you're new. You're down here and God's up here and the way that you're going to get to God, and just think of your own religious experience, the way that you're going to get to God is you're going to follow this rule and this rule and this rule and this rule. True? True? And and if you're a good boy or you're a good girl, then at the end of the day, you can somehow obtain this righteousness through not grace, through faith, but through your own works so that you can boast. Righteousness and religion will never go hand in hand. Religion cannot, it was not designed to, make you righteous. Here are the two things that religion does. It can, it can't make you righteous, but look at me. It can sure as heck make you self-righteous, amen? It can make you self-righteous if you know how to follow rules better than the tens on the other side of the aisle. Then you can puff out your chest because it always doesn't compare a standard to God. It always compares a standard to everyone else that you're better than. It can make you self-righteous as you look around the rule and say, check, 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 check. No religious system gets an exemption from this. Every denomination struggles. You will find Pharisees in every single movement Religion was never designed to get you to God because the gospel is top down. God comes down to you through his son, Jesus. It's not what you did. It's what he did for you. So one of two things are gonna happen if you play the religious game. Number one, you're gonna become self-righteous. Or number two, you're gonna throw in the towel. You're gonna say, man, I, I tried that. I tried, like I white knuckled it for you know two years, three years. I went through the process growing up and the religious structure that my parents mandated that I go through. But I came to realize at a certain point, but this was just phony. I can't follow all these rules. In fact, these people act like they follow all these rules, but we all know because it's Aberdeen and we know each other, they only follow about half the rules that they claim to follow, and their parents don't even know what they do with the other half. They look like a one, but, you know, I mean, it never plays out, really. And so you abandon the church. Religion was never Designed to make you righteous, but it does a really good job of making you self righteous. Here's a second thing I want to share with you. Jesus is what I already said. Jesus redefines the process. In fact, the reason the Sermon on the Mount is so beautiful is because he redefines the process right in the greatest sermon that's ever been preached. He doesn't change a few things, he changes everything. And so in the Old Testament, Going into the time that we're in where we're reading this text, the scribes and the Pharisees made all sorts of rules. In fact, they even had kind of these scorecards. They had the big rules and the smaller rules. It was a point system, and they had the most points. Everyone else was trying to be righteous, and they were JV, and these guys were, you know, the college athletes, the professional athletes of being self-righteous. No one could even compare, and what they did is what we all do when we're trying to be righteous through religious means. This is super important. If you forget everything else I'm gonna tell you, don't forget I'm gonna tell you this. They did the same thing that we do. They looked to the external for behavior modification instead of being changed from the inside out. That's what religion does. Religion says, on the surface, I can look better than you. Relationship with Christ says, I'm changed on the inside and because I'm changed on the inside, the things on the outside, the peripheral, starts to change. Religion is an inside out or an outside in system. Relationship with Christ is the invert. Jesus changes external conformity. He goes after external conformity, and he goes from a mindset of being righteous to now internal transformation, and this is absolutely something that would have blown their minds. In fact, what he's doing in the Sermon on the Mount, you guys, is he's showing us that no one meets the standard. Because the self-righteous people are going, well, I did this and I did that, and so I'm kind of okay. And so he goes on, we're gonna to get to this next week. Before I go to Peru, I'm gonna preach this message. He goes on to say, you wanna think you can meet this standard of righteousness? He says, you've heard it said, don't murder. But what I'm telling you is if you have anger in your heart, I'm paraphrasing, if you have anger in your heart, you've already sinned. Hey, show of hands, who's ever murdered someone? Let's just get the cops involved, Right? Probably most of you, right? We're eclectic, but I've never done it. But uh, how many of you could say, I've never been angry? I've never been angry at my spouse. They're just perfect and I'm perfect. And I mean, Jesus is saying not even the Pharisees can do this. In fact, their heart is so messed up that they're the worst at it. Why do you think they wanted to kill Jesus? He embarrasses them. They're self-righteous. He says this. This is the famous one. He says, you've heard it said not to commit adultery. That's the outward. That's the action. But I tell you, if you've ever lusted after a woman in your heart, you've already cheated. You don't even need to raise your hands for that one. You're guilty. You're guilty. He's throwing an ethic that's unobtainable out to show you that he's the way that you're righteous. Sin has to be dealt with at a heart level. If it's not dealt with at a heart level, it will grow back with such ferocity that it will absolutely ruin you. Let me just explain what I mean. Someone someone said this to me. In fact, I just listened to a guy say this last week. Um, I live on a farm. It's probably the best experience of my life. I realize that I'm a total farmer and so manly. But um, my only real manly job is I mow. I like to mow. I would mow quite a bit if I could unless it's really hot out. I just mow and mow and listen to music, and, and that's what I do. But um, I don't like to spray for weeds. Anybody? I mean, it's just hot, and then you feel like, well, am I gonna get cancer from this? I mean, just, it just seems like you wouldn't wanna do that too much. And, uh, but I do it anyways because you have to, and, and here's my point. Uh, sometimes I can just mow over these weeds. In fact, this summer is like a hay field for the grass, and so there's not a lot of mowing. There's just a lot of dust, and finally, thank God, farmers, amen, it's raining out. And right, so um, as I am taking care of this property that I'm you know, just this carekeeper for that I love so much, as I'm doing that, uh, there, there are parts of the farm that I have to spray, and then there are other parts where I go, eh, I'm just going to mow it over because it's all mixed in the grass. And when I mow it over, what happens? It takes like three hours. It's so frustrating. Why, does weed, why do weeds grow way better than grass, right? In about three hours or two days or whatever it is, they grow back bigger and stronger, and over and over and over, round and round, the process goes. But then someone enlightened me to the fact that this poison actually is really good at killing weeds, and so I've taken that stuff, and then it's just this miracle. I get six months of weed-free living. And here's my point in telling you that story. That, that's how sin works. When you're just trying to white knuckle it, and you're just trying to change from the outside, that sin actually grows in your life, and if it doesn't pop up as a weed in that area because you think you've done so well you've defeated it, just watch out in your self-righteous state. It'll pop up about a mile down the road in your heart. When you go after things from behavior modification, you're mowing over the weeds, that's my point. When you're doing things internally and letting Jesus rescue you from your sin, and you're doing things because he has made you righteous, Now it's not behavior modification. Now it's internal transformation from the inside out. And when that happens, it's like taking that weed killer and pouring it all over the sin in your life, and it kills it. It kills it. That's the way God designed it. Here's the last thing. Everyone needs to go home and mow their weeds right now, okay? But before you get there, I want to close with this. Here's the hope in the text. The third thing is this. Jesus loved you before you were ever righteous. That's the gospel. You think you chose Jesus, Jesus chose you. I want you to hear my heart behind that. That's not some deep theological statement, that's just the truth. Think about your own life when you, when you finally realize that Jesus is the Messiah and that you were going to follow him. And now think back in that trail of thought. How long before that did you see him start to woo you in your affections for him, It's Sturham. Now that you have hindsight of 20 years as a believer, whatever it is, you can look back and you can go, man, I thought I chose Jesus that day where I raised my hand and said, Christ, you're the savior. But if I'm gonna be honest, there were things happening in my life where Jesus was pursuing me like the perfect groom. Here's what's so cool about the gospel. It's the greatest love story that's ever been told. There's this picture of the gospel where Jesus is the groom and we're the bride, and what the groom does so beautifully is he pursues. Is that not romantic, is that not masculine, when a man says, I know what I want, right? That's why some of you meet each other in church, it's a good place to connect, right? I know what I want, I know that bride is beautiful from the inside out, I'm gonna pursue her, I'm gonna court her, that one is mine, that's the one that I want, right? Now, you could also be a stalker and a weirdo, so just keep it in context. Jesus pursued you, Jesus loved you, this is the hope of the gospel, before you ever did anything righteous. He pursued you as the perfect groom. And Jesus didn't love you because you were righteous, he loved you so much, he made you righteous. You were lost and he found you. In fact, the reason I know that this is true because he lays out a parable in Luke chapter 15 that explains exactly what I'm talking about, and most of you have probably heard of it. In fact, I'm going to read it to close. Luke 15:4, Jesus talks about a lost sheep. He says this, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 91, ninety-nine in the open country and go after the ten? Not ten in sheep, ten in the unrighteous scale. What what shepherd of you, if you have a real shepherd's heart, doesn't leave the 99 and then goes after the one? And when he's found it, keep following this with me. This is our closer. He lays it on his shoulders. This is so intimate. He lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, and he says to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. This is beautiful. Look at it through a different lens. The shepherd is having to have these sheep. This isn't optional. You know, if you want to feed your family and you leave the 99, you're cooked. No lamb chops, right? I mean, this was a massive part of their economy. If you leave the 99, you're leaving your identity, If you leave the 99, you're leaving your financial stability, you're leaving your emotional comfort, you are a shepherd, that's what you do. Without the sheep, you have nothing. And Jesus says the real shepherd, in terms of the gospel, looks at the 99, sees the one that took off, and then chases them down at the risk of losing the 99. That's my heart, right, that's what he's saying, that's my heart as the good shepherd. And, and here's what's so intimate about this text. It is so incredibly beautiful the betrayal of the gospel. And I want you to hear it because this could be your story. That when he goes and finds the sheep, he doesn't get off the leash. He doesn't spank it and tell it, what in the world were you doing? I've got 99 sheep over there, and you're you're the dumbest sheep of the whole bunch. You ran off on your own. You have no water to drink. You have no food to eat. You'd be dead if I didn't pick you up. No, he takes this sheep. He rejoices in the fact that he has found what was lost and that the righteousness of Christ, here's the metaphor, has been placed on this sheep, and that's you. And then here's what he does. Look at me. He takes the sheep. He places it on his back and he starts just rejoicing that the loss has been found. And we grow up thinking in our own sin that the way that we're going to become like Jesus is through working harder and working harder and working harder and working harder. And hear me say this. We're closing with this. Pay attention. He carries you. He carries you. He rejoices in you. Before you were ever righteous, he places his righteousness on you. That's the foolishness of our thinking that we can somehow earn our way to God. We're lost. We're spiritually starving. He leaves the pack. He goes after you. He knows your story, he knows your family history, he knows your sin, he knows those deep dark things that you're ashamed of, he knows all of those things and he doesn't beat you into submission and say, follow me. He picks you up, places you on his shoulders, goes to a cross, places that on his shoulders, dies for your sin, rises from death so that you can have life, pours out his blood all over the cross so that you can have a right relationship with God, and he makes you righteous. Guys, that is a Christ, that is a Savior worth following. That is a Savior worth following. He makes you righteous. We're the lost sheep. He carries us back home. There is a relief in being carried. I don't know about you, but in my 41 years of existence, I need to be carried by Christ. I can't pick up the mantle and do it all on my own by hard work. He carries you into this place of salvation. He carries you away from sin. He carries you in dark times. He carries you when your marriage is struggling. He carries you when your kids are rebelling. He carries you when all seems to be lost. He is a Savior that redeems, and he carries. Do you know this Savior? Have you worshiped him Have you surrendered your life to him? Not out of begrudging submission where you're saying, well, I guess that's the system in place, but out of this groom is so amazing to his bride, and I want to follow a man like that. I want to follow a God like that. Do you know Christ? Have you repented of your sins and given him your life and allowed him through his work on the cross to make you righteous? You can do that right now in this moment. Let's go to the Lord. Jesus, we thank you for a righteousness that absolutely changes everything. We thank you that hope we have in the gospel is so much bigger than a list of to-dos and not to-dos. That you look at us like a sheep that's lost and before we were ever righteous through you, you found us, you pursued us And I would ask that anyone that's listening online right now, or anyone that's in this space, if they've never surrendered their life to you, that right now in this moment they would say, Jesus, I'm a sinner, I I can't even combat it, I know that I've fallen short of your perfect standard. But I also know, Jesus, that you love me, that you've redeemed me, that you have wooed me and you have drawn me into you, and I have these affections for you for maybe the first time in my life. I know." That and, and when I stand before a holy God, I'm gonna be judged for my sin, but I know that you've paid the price for my sin in my place so that I can go to heaven with you. And I declare on this day, not out of begrudging submission, but I declare on this day out of heart transformation that I want to follow you and give you my life. Jesus, we thank you that you've made us righteous. We thank you for what you're gonna do in the future of new life through making disciples. We pray this in your name, amen.